back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Demi... Well, this week I am not joined by Dmitri Kalygin. Nothing dramatic or anything. He had a scheduling conflict, so couldn't make it this weekend. But that means the first World War Now solo episode is here, with yours truly, Conrad Franz, broadcasting from the great state of Texas. And uh, there's a lot to talk about this week, so I don't think this will be anywhere near as long as our normal episodes, just because it's just me, so there won't be any banter, no inspirational back and forth that brings out the incredible, fantastic, high IQ new ideas that Dimitri and I so frequently you know, bring to you on a weekly basis. It'll just be me tonight, so don't expect this to go much longer than 45 minutes. I don't think it should go that long. But with all that being said, we have a lot to talk about. There was, you know, we got German monarchist coups. We have crazy stuff going on in Ukraine, as usual. Uh, We have Cyprus. Things are heating up in Cyprus. Canada on the verge of balkanization, question mark. You know, we're going to have to see about that. Yay, of course, in the news like he has been since he stormed onto the scene and with all that, we're going to have a big show. I've got a few other things that aren't news-related that I'm going to want to share with you before I sign off. But there's been so much going on that I'll probably forget something before this uh, show ends and I stop recording and I'm going to want to go back. But I'm going to try to get this done in one take. No regrets. So thank you all for joining me tonight. Be sure to follow us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, World War Now. It comes right up if you search it on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to us on Telegram, World War Now Tele, that's T-E-L-E at the end of World War Now. And be sure to follow us on Twitter as well, World War Now underscore. So with all that, I want to make sure everyone also tunes into our previous episode, episode 10 with Dean Arnold, which is a fantastic episode. Uh, please tune into the Substack to hear the full thing. It was really, really good. We're definitely going to invite Dean back on the show in the future, so be sure to tune into that. But... Yeah, with all that, we'll have that linked in the description, yeah. But with all of that being said, let's let's dive right in. I think I'll, I'll start with Ukraine. Nothing extremely dramatic has happened. Everyone's talking about, of course, the Brittany Griner, Victor Boot, Bout, however his name is pronounced, trade, which I find profoundly boring. I don't think I need to talk about a black lesbian or whatever. I, I'm convinced, I'm not so convinced about the gender. I think that might be a male, but I really don't enjoy having that in the news more than it already has to be, so I'm going to spare you guys a lot of this diatribe, besides saying that we'll have it on our Telegram channel. Victor did a, you know, the war, the man, the <laughs> the god of war, whatever his, uh, his nickname was, this arms dealer. He gave an interview with RT and, you know, just, sla- uh, you know, slapped down U.S., you know, liberalism. Didn't He said Americans are great people and things like this, and, uh, you know, really put down, you know, the growing sense of uh, valuelessness and the loss of Christian values in America, which, you know, interesting choice for them to interview this recently freed, you know, supposedly international ultra-criminal, but very interesting. It's some interesting content. It's He's a well-spoken guy. He was in, you know, American prison for a long time, so I think his English, his English is pretty good, which I found somewhat interesting. So that's really about all I have to say about that. So, but with Ukraine in general, uh, the ground is freezing. We're well into December now. It's getting hard, I anticipate. Probably after Christmas, we might really begin to see a big Russian ground offensive. I mean, when this when the ground is hard, we have over 150,000 of those mobilized troops are just in the combat zone. No offensives have necessarily been done dramatically. We are seeing a lot of movement in Bakhmut and other areas in Donbass, with the Wagner Group is you know making some pretty strong advancements 
and they're really surrounding and kind of goading in these Ukrainian forces into this Bakhmut cauldron, and they're they're going to try to, I guess, take out as many as many forces and demilitarize as much as they can in that area, which, you know, it's getting close to Christmas time. This is definitely a good time to be praying for the, uh, you know, for the end of this conflict and for ultimately just a peaceful, a peaceful time in Christendom. And I'm of the opinion, of course, that the most realistic way that'll come about is a rapid accession of territory to the Russians and the, of course, collapse of the current Kiev regime. But at this point, you know, we can, we can hope for all sorts of ways that the bloodshed can stop. So be praying for that. Always be, always be prayerful. This, if there's one thing you take away from this podcast, always, always be prayerful. In many ways, we're seeing the, the conflict continue to shape out geopolitically. You know, I believe Iran has talked about more openly, directly sending Russia drones. The Russian military and the Iranian military have been meeting more frequently. The collaboration has been heating up, I believe, as you know, certain actors get taken away as the NATO front perhaps opens up with NATO's accession of Sweden and Finland into its ranks. They're going to want to be shoring up that southern border more to have that ally in Iran. And the Iran allyship, of course, secures their alliance with China. Iran and China have a very strong relationship. So the BRICs are shoring themselves up. You know, we talked a little bit in the last episode of the theme about, you know, how the world wars, the U.S. versus the BRICs. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. But if it were to be on geopolitical entities solely and, you know, internationally defined, you know, kind of alliances and groups, that would be a pretty, a pretty succinct way of explaining it. So I think I'll agree with Dean there. And as, as we talked about in that episode, you know, Ethiopia, some Saudi Arabia, even apparently these countries were really trying to get into BRICs. I mean, China and Saudi Arabia's recent meeting, we saw Saudis roll out the red carpet or the green carpet, as it were, for uh, for China and treat treat Xi as if you know he was the emperor himself, which was very interesting. It seems that Saudis are the Saudis are reading the writing on the wall and seeing, you know, the Eurasian landmass as the as the rising power, especially from an energy perspective, which is all that they're going to be thinking about. So, interesting things to watch. That's I've already diverted from Ukraine here, but. You know, with Ukraine, I believe it was Strelkov was taken into Moscow, and I believe he's been kind of, not exiled, he's just been kind of stripped of his current command that he had, I believe, in the Donetsk militia. I'm not all educated on that, so forgive me if I'm getting a little bit of that messed up, but I was reading some of the things he was saying after his dismissal or his, you know, being moved into no man's land, whatever his current status is as an officer. You know, he's doing a bit of blackpilling, saying that he believes the the conflict is a bit... Uh, that they're directionless, that they're kind of just holding a front line and lobbing uh, artillery and not with strategic objectives to taking strategic goals, a vision. You know, Strelkov, very you know, idealistic, a nationalist. He wants, he wants a unified front and an idea of liberation going into this territory. But I've seen many people say that they believe that he just doesn't understand the ultimate strategy of the, the long grind, the, the demilitarization, the, the slow, no, like... The, the flashy, you know, things that come with these big risks, are, those aren't being taken. You know, this is me saying this is what I've, what I've heard from others who are, you know, perhaps countering Strelkov a little bit. But I think that ultimately I'm, you know, everyone here I think is reading the same information around the same Telegram channels. We're running the same Russian paragraphs through Google Translate as fast as we can to learn what's going on. Or I'm texting Dmitri to tell me what this says. But 
in my opinion, you know, black pilling super hard is, is I, I see January especially marking like a final turning point in the war. Like I really don't see any other Ukra substantial Ukrainian victories coming once the next winter offensive, you know, in 2023, I believe really kicks off. I think, you know, we say this is the beginning of the end. You know, people say that about a million things a million times and it's never the beginning of the end or whatever. But as the time goes on and as the West and Ukraine double down, on their claims of retaking Crimea and some of these things, while schizophrenically saying perhaps we might negotiate. As that goes on, and the church persecutions keep ramping up as they have been, Ukrainian statehood shrinks. The likelihood of Ukraine maintaining a substantial amount of territory as a state in any meaningful capacity goes, goes down. And those persecutions are a big, big deal. And people, of course, outside of our circles, this podcast, we talk about it a lot, but there's a... Like literally, like our as as far as I can tell, if a recording of our podcast existed, and you know someone was maybe able to listen to it, if it was someone to translated it or subscribe, uh, transcribed it into Russian or Ukrainian, it sounds like it would count as you know anti-Ukrainian materials, and they would get arrested because there's SBU is raiding monasteries, well-known monasteries, rural skeets churches that have that have literature that's simply talking about the prophecies of Russian saints and elders and biblical exegesis and, you know, the comparison of the Orthodox tradition with the apostolic, you know, earliest of the Orthodox tradition. And this is, this is landing priests, lawsuits, arrests, monks are being harassed. There's people having guns drawn on them. This is, it, it is surreal. I've, I mean, I've seen these pictures of follow us on Telegram and Twitter. We post about all of this, but this is, it is genuinely surreal because it's the kind of stuff, I mean, it's in a different language. Of course, I speak English, but it's the kind of stuff I would have on my bookshelf and you're getting completely arrested by an authority that has been financed by the Western powers, the U.S., the, you know, the, the global American empire more than any other entity almost in human history. So this is, um, it's really crazy stuff. So be sure to keep the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in your prayers, Metropolitan Onufri, all the Christians there suffering. There's a great video by Metropolitan Longin. And it was covered on Tucker Carlson, you know, him triumphantly standing before his flock, you know, telling them to rejoice. And, you know, orthodoxy is, you know, there will always be people that try to take it from you, to take Christ from you, and to get you to, you know, go back on your faith and renounce it. But at the end of the day, that's what we were promised. And so it's a, it's really a, you know, it's some early church stuff. Also some, you know, the early church in the latter days have many things in common, and we're starting to see see just a lot more of this and it's just insane that i mean i believe it was even matt frat i've had on some jesuit i'm sure to have to justify the ukrainian persecutions and to counter signal what tucker was saying and of course he was adding in all sorts of muddying nuance about you know the tomos of autocephaly from the ecumenical patriarch and all this kinds of stuff which again we always encourage everyone to read the metropolitan nikiforos of kikos book on the subject but you know the catholics of course getting into these disputes muddying the waters I mean, just as the Uniates do in all of these countries coming in and, you know, acting as Vatican imperialists and seizing territory and, you know, finances ultimately just getting more and more of those tithes going into Rome with their, you know, that project. It's very, uh, and of course to see Matt Frad come out so, so quickly in defense of current thing Ukraine like that is, you know, I mean, not to say it's not surprising, but it's just a bit disheartening. I mean, I thought you might be a bit better than that, Matt. But anyway... And that's about, again, nothing super dramatic has happened on the ground. You know, Odessa is in, like, total blackout. Obviously, the artillery strikes have kept going. 
but no super dramatic offensives on the ground, no uh, no seizing of territory by either side in a super dramatic way, just the continued bombardment and the unfortunate destruction of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure that the Russians up until this point had tried so hard to avoid doing. But Odessa, total blackout for a long time now. You see pictures of people mass charging their phones at charging banks and stuff like that. It's a sad sight to see, but... You know, it seems that the West is willing to fight to the last Ukrainian in some regard to achieve a completely ridiculous end of unachievable regime change in Russia, which almost everyone, I think, is accepting is not going to happen. But they trudge on for reasons that are many, and we have discussed on this show, you know, from ethno-religious to strictly financial at all, kind of conglomerates into this, this horrible specter of evil that just wants to just wants to destroy any vestige of of resistance to it you know that appears in the world but yeah this will leave we'll leave the sit rep there i think that's a good assessment kind of of the certain on the ground warfare situation and what we're looking for as january and 2023 approach as the advent season marches on I hope everybody is of course having a merry christmas but with that we'll move on to I kind of want to talk about the German coup thing. I just think that's so, I think it's fun. That's a fun thing that I like to talk about. And, you know, and I don't want to, you know, if this is what it could be and is the German state truly cracking down and making an example out of people that really weren't doing anything wrong and making it out of this, this coup thing, I really do sympathize for them. Regardless of whether or not that's true or that the people involved were feds or whatever, this whole thing is, of course, being turned into the German January 6th, which is ridiculous. And the reason I can say that outside of, you know, other people just pointing out that yeah, this is not a this is not necessarily a serious threat to quote unquote German democracy. This is being made out to pass new legislation to ban opposition parties like the AFD, uh, crack down and pass new laws that would ban being pro Russian in any way or being against, you know, unconditional financial support for Ukraine or the, these other things going on in the eastern part of you know, the eastern borders of the European Union, they want to make any kind of uh, reasonable policy regarding, you know, coming to the negotiating table, having a reasonable energy relationship with Russia. They want to make that basically illegal. So they're going to, you know, do a... They saw how well J6 worked in America, I guess, so they wanted to have something similar in Germany. But basically what happened was, I guess it's been over 50 arrests now. The original arrests were like 25 it seems that, you know, a group of Reichsburgers who are, you know, German Empire restorationists, Second Reich restorationists, imperialists, um, royalists, monarchists, they wanted to storm the Reichstag, arrest members of the Bundestag, which is the German parliament, apparently simultaneously cause mass civil unrest through the destruction of infrastructure, and then, after all of this, appoint Prince Royce, Heinrich Thirteenth of the House of Royce of Germany as the Kaiser, or interim Kaiser, I guess, before some kind of new system of succession or power could be held. And in my opinion, that sounds epic and based, but unfortunately it was not to be as the German police cracked down hard and we got unfortunate shots of Heinrich XIII himself being walked away in cuffs. But I believe Alexander Mercurius and others made the point that, you know, the media was there from the very beginning, they tried to make this, like, they, they're talking about it like it was some big secret raid operation, but the media was there from the beginning. They got these photos. It's turned into this whole thing. 
it already has a not just already it had a wikipedia page like the day it happened if <laughs> there's already a what's it called yeah the 2022 germany coup d'etat plot on december 22nd 25 members of a far-right terrorist group were arrested for allegedly planning a coup d'etat in germany of course innocent till proven guilty i'm not going to throw any shade right now on anybody that's been arrested it talks about the german far-right extremist reichsburger movement and uh you know, it just, it just goes in down the whole the whole story, implement you know, indicting supposed uh, AFD former MPs and stuff like that. You know, so that's part of why I think it could be uh, they could really we'll see how the case goes. They could really be making a mountain out of a molehill on you know perhaps out of context messages or just ultimately constitutionally protected speech. Although, who am I to talk about constitutionally protected speech in Germany? There is no free speech in that damn country or most countries in Europe at this point. So. Who knows? It's probably not looking good for them if they are legit and were, you know, simple dissidents trying to do things. But we'll keep up with it. Uh, as a monarchist myself, I'm, you know, sympathetic. But we shall, we shall see. I have no idea how serious of a person necessarily Heinrich the Thirteenth is. I listened to a speech he gave at the, I believe it was the World Web Forum. I honestly don't know what that is, but there was a large crowd. People were recording him, so he has some kind of audience. He gave a speech and. It was a good speech. He's not the best speaker. It wasn't a terrible speech from a presentation perspective, but he gave a decent enough speech talking about Germany being an occupied nation, you know, American empire, global finance. I believe he explicitly names the Rothschilds, which, as far as I'm aware, may be illegal in Germany. So <laughs> who knows? But it was, a, uh, it was a good speech, you know, really talking about globalism and kind of, you know, in a very much legal, not violent way, it was calling for the liberation of Germany from what he perceives to be an occupation. And I find it encouraging that there are people who are connected. I mean, you know, in Germany, even less so than countries like the Scandinavian countries and England, of course, that has a monarch. Like, being a aristocrat in Germany at this point means almost nothing. You know, perhaps you might have some land, some castles or something, and, you know, have this title that some people might respect so you can get speaking gigs and things like that. But you have literally no power. Of course, the, uh, the plot... You know, that's been uncovered, supposedly involved ex-military, ex-police, uh, police councilmen. You know, there's these local police councils, people on those. Um, apparently they had 21,000 supporters. Uh, I guess that was through online network connections, so that, that could be very inflated. Who knows what that really means? But they're trying to imply that this is a large fifth column in German society that was just trying to rise up and they really you read about reichsberger and a lot of them you know they call them anti-semitic of course like they call everything in germany but they're not nazis they're not flying the swastika they're you know pre-third reichists and the uh in many ways i believe they had gotten really energized during covid and a lot of people started getting into it they're trying to paint it of course as the german q anon which also had overlaps with covid so they're you know trying to paint this the all these dissidents in germany that they also anticipate are going to come out when these energy shortages come, they're going to be sure they've got this excuse ready to go to crack down. And I'm like, oh, you're just following up on the on the Heinrich the Thirteenth Royce coup. I don't. Oh, you're freezing in your house? No, no, no. That's irrelevant. You're just uh, you're an insurrectionist. You know the same kind of dismissive nonsense you hear in America when people bring up legitimate grievances about the current regime. But at the end of the day, this is. <laughs> I think the funniest thing about this is I think it proves, and I'm sorry. To my Anglosphere listeners, especially, you know, my Bongland, Londoner, you know, true UK 
UK boy listeners, sorry about that loss to France. I was rooting for y'all against France. But this proves that even though they've literally taken so many L's, the whole 20th century, just L after L after L, just the just a boot stomping on the German face, the German is still more ready to rise up than the Anglo. And while I may have a German name, I am also very much an Anglo, a son of the American Anglo tradition, ethnically and, you know, I speak, we're listening to an English-speaking podcast here, but I'm sorry. There is no viable political, pseudo-political, crypto-political, underground political, as far as I'm aware, anything viable in England that is going to do anything against globalism. And, you know, we talked about some prophecies on the show before that perhaps England may be more protected because of prayers of some holy enthroned women, and that I hope that that's true. You know, that would be fantastic. But from any kind of political perspective, from any kind of uh, cultural influence perspective, I don't see the UK coming out of this one. And the Germans, who have literally just taken it the whole time and had their spirit crushed and had it basically made it illegal to be proud, to be German, to stand up for yourself, to be, you know, to, you know, irredentist German claims are like the worst kind. You know, that's what started World War II. What are you going to do, be Hitler? But even because of all that, there are still, it seems to me, a lot of people in Germany that just knit that all. They bit their tongue and they put their head down and they put in that work and they're building that network and they're doing what needs to be done. And Germany will rise again. And I'm, I am more confident that about that than even seeing some kind of, you know, based England rise up. But we'll see. Things can change. Things can always change. And again, this might have just literally been a fed op, but the point still stands. I believe that, you know, the Germans have more of, almost in many ways, more of that American spirit of, you know, this, you know, you may call it boomer conserva conspiracy-ness, but I think it's, even in Germany, there's a lot of people like doctors, I literally doctors were being killed in Germany before even anywhere else for talking about COVID. I'm forgetting that one doctor's name. He was getting like, he got raided live on stream a lot of times just for talking about stuff to do with vaccines and about, you know, COVID lockdowns and, you know, lab theory and stuff. So, you know, it's a people, there's real fighters out there in Germany and that's real, that's occupied territory. So, you know, we're praying for Germany. We're praying for our German supporters, you know, Heinrich the 13th, you know, we'll be watching your case. We'll see how that turns out. But, uh, you know, crypto royalism, crypto you know, royalist, reactionary, anti-globalism. Is it real? Is it just a LARP? You know, I guess we're, I guess that's here. You know, we're going to be keeping an eye on that. You know, I think I know, people might know where I hope things go, but, you know, I'm biased. <laughs> but in a similar vein, as far as uh, political realignments, you know, dramatic shifts in perhaps the status of federal states goes, in Canada, which I've always said on this show is in a much higher chance of has always been at a much higher risk of balkanization than the U.S. or any other kind of relevant Western country in a lot of ways, is Canada has, I believe is Alberta, I believe, I know, it was Alberta uh, initiated its Sovereignty Act, which I believe, as far as I can tell, makes Alberta in many ways a similar status as Quebec, with its kind of more of a sovereign status from the government in Ottawa. Uh, it gives them the ability to review and then as far as I can tell, not implement and actively basically resist certain laws from the federal government. I believe they're going to try this on the new federal gun law coming in from Trudeau. I think he's trying to ban handguns. The premier of Alberta is standing pretty strongly, and it seems that Trudeau is basically willing 
to let this happen in a, I think, a hope that he can maybe stay in power in the future by not continuing to alienate the kind of pro-freedom group and mass movement that's grown up since those trucker protests that have really just, like, Canadians, there are a lot of Canadians that knew they lived under liberal tyranny, but they needed that sort of mass event to get unified into just thinking that way, the same way that Americans, kind of, you know, conservatives think that way about Democrats. So Canada has, the, the gears really turned up there and it's gone from being way behind America in some ways to now being ahead of America in some of its, you know, late stage political development. But what was the quote? I believe she said, the premier of Alberta said something about Canada no longer being like a centralized government, but a federation of independent states or something like that. And I saw all sorts of ideas of them talking about forming, you know, five regions and then those having sub-regions and then there being a collective government that does very limited things and, you know, all sorts of interesting ideas from a federalist perspectives. And, you know, it, it brings you back to early America when, you know, the authority of the federal government and the states and the territories was all being decided. So it's really very interesting. It's a big win for Canada bros. Canada has been taking so many L's for so long. And frankly, if Alberta, Saskatchewan and Quebec can both just secede and Canada just stop existing, I'd happily take uh, you know, those those Great Plains Canadians, you know, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, I take them into the States, you know, before I took a lot of others, before I took Puerto Rico, that's for sure. And frankly, I'd give up Hawaii just as fast as I'd take Alberta, Saskatchewan. But interesting stuff in Canada, as I said, Canada's always been at a higher risk of balkanization. People forget 1995 Quebec independence referendum, 49.5% to 50.5. Almost Quebec became its own country. We almost had you know, two Anglo countries, a French country, and a Latin country on the North American continent. So, you know, is the future of America a sort of EU style thing with all these different Latin, Anglo, German, French, and now basically Chinese on the west coast of Vancouver? Like, is that going to be our future? I don't know. You know I, I'd hope something more interesting than that happens. But, you know, Dramatic change dramatic is dramatic change, and we, as we've said before, it's black swan events ultimately that precipitate these sorts of things. So as much as one can take an educated guess, it is all in the hands of the Almighty. But with all of that, moving away from Canada, there's not too much else to say about that. There is unfortunately trouble brewing in Cyprus. As I said, it trouble in Cyprus. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's, it's, a, it's a dramatic place, it's at the center of civilizations, you know, right there in the in the eastern Mediterranean, off the coast of the Holy Land and Lebanon and Syria, right below Greece and Turkey. So of course it's gonna be, you know, a place of geopolitical, geostrategic, theopolitical influence. And of course the Cypriot Archiepiscopal elections are coming up. We all know it's silly that the Cypriots vote for their archbishop, but here we are. I've been emailing everyone I know, I've already secured some more votes on the island of Cyprus for Metropolitan Neophytos. I hope you all are doing the same because we need him to be in that top three. That's what's the most important. If he can just get third, second, it's unlikely he gets first, but he can get in that top three. He'll be before the synod and the Holy Spirit can always have a chance to work through these bishops, through these men who are hopefully leading lives of prayer. And as I mentioned before, Metropolitan Nikiforos of Kikos, who wrote the book, the literal book, defending Metropolitan Unifrin, the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and definitively proving that the schismatics and the FANAR and the EP have no case for what they're doing. He's, of course, on the synod, and he's a very influential, popular bishop. So 
I hope that based on his academic work, I can anticipate stalwart support from him for bishops who would do the right thing in the current ecclesiastical situation we face in the Orthodox world. But unfortunately, we already discussed in a previous episode, Metropolitan Athanasios, seemingly kind of balking on really standing strong in support of the canonical church, you know, talking about enforcing precedent. And again, maybe he's saying this to garner support before the election. You know, maybe he comes back and does the right thing. We will, of course, pray for that. But we like to keep, I like to keep things honest. You know, we like to, someone who, their word is their word. They're doing what they're saying. Have them be elected with a vision guided by the Holy Spirit to to lead their church into holiness. And another person, another metropolitan of Cyprus, Metropolitan Isaiah, who is also considered a front runner in the polls. He was a supporter of Metropolitan Onifri and the canonical church. And what happened? He went to Constantinople. He went to the Fenar, who's serving liturgy with uh, Patriarch Bartholomew and others. And who shows up? But Epiphany Domenko himself, Mr. Schism, you know, the defrocked layman claiming to be the Metropolitan of Kiev in Ukraine. And he showed up. They con-celebrated. And sure enough, Metropolitan Isaiah has changed his mind and has come around, which is very unfortunate. All of this, of course, happening at the same time. If anyone follows me on Twitter, Gnomrad, Gnomrad, I got into a bit of a spat with a very, very, I will just say, detestable individual, Elias Damianakis, Archon Elias, as he styles himself so so proudly. For those that don't know, an Archon is someone who's been awarded, I believe, this medal in Order of St. Andrew, which is this silly self-congratulatory medal for being a shill for the ecumenical patriarch, especially against Russia. You know, I consider them very much influenced by the State Department, the U.S. intelligence operation. And uh, this despicable character, you know, he's an iconographer or whatever, but he denies the sainthood of the Romanovs. He denies the sainthood of St. John of Shanghai. He claims entirety of Rokors and schism and shouldn't exist. He entirely in favor of a completely dominated Orthodox world dominated by the ecumenical patriarch, he basically sees him as the Pope. He's fantastic, close friends with El Pitoforos, our favorite abortionist hierarch. His wife is actually, as we speak, they might be done now, but a few days ago was on you know, pilgrimage in the Holy Land with El Pitoforos. I saw them meeting with the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Theophilos, which I think anyone can interpret as explicit lobbying in the favor of the schismatics. Right at this time, of course, the EP publishes this article, we are not, or the statement, we are not interfering in the Cyprus elections, and, you know, Methinks that doth protest too much is what I have to say to that. You know, with your deepest, you know, most scummy operatives, Elias and his wife with El Pitoforos of all people, of course, probably giving all sorts of sweet ideas and treats and offers to the Patriarch of Jerusalem for, I would consider supporting anyone but Metropolitan Neopitos and making noise and making sure that the Hellenic world, you know, seems united behind whoever, of course, is made Archbishop, that they would be stalwartly and staunchly behind the schismatics to not disrupt the singular vision that, you know, the, the whole war in Ukraine gave the EP a chance to jump on the Russophobia and the demonization of Russia and the rest of the world. And that, uh, just go to Elias Damianakis's horrendous Twitter page and you'll see more than enough of that really just disgusting garbage that has no place in orthodoxy. So if you're listening to this, Elias, you know, just go soak your head, man. Like, no one, like, you're not doing anything for anybody. No, again, if I encourage everybody who knows Greeks, who knows people in Cyprus, encourage them to vote. That's the most, probably the most staunchly I'll encourage anyone to vote for anything, but this is important. And I think it would really just be fantastic to have such a saintly hierarch as the head of an ancient autocephalous Orthodox church. So in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, may we pray 
that God's will would be done in Cyprus. Amen. But, uh, you know, we keep chugging along here a bit past the half-hour mark. Uh, Ye, of course, was in the news as usual. He got interviewed by Gavin McInnes, which is a very interesting interview. He also had a clubhouse space that I actually was tuned into live. And as he started talking about, you know, certain stuff going on and, uh, you know, joking about getting killed, people talking, exposing certain stuff in Hollywood. He talked a lot about the dudes that were coming after him. He, he really roasted Meek Mill as like, you know, talking about like why of all people they would ask Meek Mill to, you know, try to scare him. But the clubhouse got shut down. His account got banned. The space got totally shut down. Which, you know, it shows that they're just really monitoring everything he's saying. They're really trying to control the narrative, the flow of information. And it isn't working necessarily. I believe he released a song on his Instagram and it was released everywhere else. It was pretty good. And on Instagram, it was up for only an hour before it got banned. And it got over 3 million views. So, you know, all eyes are definitely on Ye right now. It's a big, it's a big cultural moment. And it doesn't seem like the brakes are necessarily getting put on anytime soon. So... Follow us on Telegram again. We're, we're, we're keeping you all updated on that situation. It's really, uh, in my opinion, one of the most relevant American domestic political moments since Trump, definitely since Elon buying Twitter, and it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with that zeitgeist moment. But, you know, it's a big deal. And I know some people, you know, feel very strongly, and they think it's an op, or they think it's bad, or whatever. But I just, I just encourage some people, I always say, you know, create more, criticize less. And if your first instinct, you know, is to just do the whole, you know, cancel culture thing, I just, I, I'm just skeptical of that. So it's, uh, we, we're watching that, uh, he was talking about on that, on that clubhouse space he was doing, it was entirely like a black space. It was very much an attempt to talk to the black community, talk to, you know, rap fans, hip hop fans, you know, people that listen to some of those other interviews like, uh, Drink Champs and some of those other shows that he was going on at the beginning of his kind of media campaign. But uh, he brought up monasteries, he brought up Putin, he brought up, you know, a strong Christian country that is Russia. And definitely that's one of the ideas that gets no pushback, like no black people are necessarily interested in just immediately counter-signaling Russia. That's just not something that they really think about. But uh, I believe it was in another interview, uh, Nick Fuentes explicitly said that Ye is interested in Orthodox Christianity. And, you know, I think he's, I think Ye behind the scenes is getting plugged in with some, some interesting folks, the relevant folks, you know, so pray for that, always... Be prayerful that everyone in America, you know, could come to Orthodoxy. But if, if, if Ye, a big figure, were to, you know, that would be very, very interesting. We live in interesting times indeed. <laughs> but, you know, that's a lot of, you know, as far as the geopolitics, the theopolitics, the church, all the stuff that we usually talk about, that's kind of, that's the majority of what, of what I have to say. Uh, I think I'm going to be recording another episode with Dimitri during the week. That might be what we call World War Now episode 11. I might call this, you know, World War Now 10.5. Maybe something else. Who knows? I'll. Uh, you'll be up. You're. You're listening to this. You'll already know what the title is. But as of now, I haven't quite decided yet. But uh, we'll see what the title is going to be called. But yeah, we'll probably. I'll, a lot of the stuff might get expanded on more with our my episode with Dimitri that we do later this week. But I think this is fun to do, a solo episode. See what it's like to just talk. You know, it's been over thirty minutes. So can you guys bear me just talking for that long? Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. Maybe this has been. A learning experience, and I never do it again. Just kidding, hundred percent happening again. Dimitri, they might have a solo Dimitri episode in the future too, so you know, prepare for that. You know, sometimes I might not be able to make it. But with all that, I did have something that's not current events related on my Twitter. Again, if you follow me, Noam Rad, um, I was posting about one of my favorite trilogies, which I'm not sure. I really don't think I actually finished the third book, so I can't. I can't really say that. But 
C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, you know, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. I encourage everyone to read it. You know, maybe maybe we'll do a World Renowned Book Club in the future, and that'll be one of the books we read. But it's a fantastic series, fantasy, you know, science fiction. And, you know, you all know I'm not a big space guy. So if I'm encouraging a book about space, you know it's got to be good. So one of the things about this book is the first book is sort of about this character discovering other worlds and the other planets are predict are depicted by C.S. Lewis as having not experienced the fall like we did here on Earth. And then the second book, Paralandra, he has to go to Venus and prevent, you know, the fall from happening there, you know, basically in a very, uh, it's a very beautiful allegorical, you know, tale and to discuss very, very interesting and deep Christian themes. But the third book, That Hideous Strength, is basically about the religious spiritual fight against globalism, against technocracy, against the forces of empirical materialism, new age religion, and the, um, the future disembodied brain in a jar that we're going to be facing, just computing away our demise. But in the, in the third book, That Hideous Strength, I wanted to kind of read a passage, and we talk a lot about on this show, about how we want to return to reality. We want to turn to the rule of the emperor the, when there's kings because um, the departure of that, of that order of, the, of, of a hierarchical society with the, the king and the priest and the patriarch and the, the church and the, and, the, and the crown, you know, this, this ordered society with, with aristocracy and with guilds and with people working in their field and all this sort of thing, this... And again, not everything about the old world was great. There have been improvements, but this, this was a society that made sense. It was ordered. It had structure. It wasn't willy-nilly. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was destined to cause an identity crisis in everybody as they, as they grow old and perhaps try to find their place in, you know, in, in society, in the world, in the country that they live in. You know, we, even the idea of borders and nation now are considered, I guess, evil or racist. But you know, before, when there was no... When there was an emperor, people even outside of the emperor's realm understood that, you know, Christendom is being proclaimed, Christendom is being protected by even, by a military even in some sense. There's people out there that, in theory, are willing to fight for the truth, for, for Christ, for what's right. And when there's no emperor, it, it represents a big, it represents a, you know, God has definitely left us, you know, into in more of a spiritual wilderness when there is, when there's no emperor like that. And I want to read C.S. Lewis, again, an Anglican, not Orthodox. He was very sympathetic towards Orthodoxy. He was even buried with an Orthodox cross of flowers, but again, not an Orthodox person. And I believe this book was written before he even really fully returned to Christianity. But the context of what I'm about to read, and I think me and Dimitri are going to discuss this more, so I might just leave it at this and then sign off. But the context, you know, the main character has become, I believe, what's called the Pendragon, which is kind of a mythical archetype of King Arthur, and he has had to bring back Merlin to fight against, basically, Zog and globalism, this, these forces that have taken over England and are going to take over the whole world from, from London, which I think is an appropriate place to kind of cite this, or the countryside near London. And he brings back Merlin to help them, and Merlin hasn't been back in a long time, you know, he's a medieval wizard, but he, you know, has a lot of questions, and I was going to, I'm going to read this, this dialogue here. And uh, this is Merlin starting to speak. Uh, he says, God's will be done, but is it yet come to that? The Saxon king of yours, who sits at Windsor now, is there no help in him? Referring, of course, to the king of England at the time. And Ransom, the main character, responds, he has no power in this matter. Then Merlin asks, "Then he, is he not weak enough to be overthrown? 
the response, I have no wish to overthrow him. He is the king. He was crowned and anointed by the archbishop. In the order of Lokes, I may be Pendragon, but in the order of Britain, I am the king's man. Merlin then responds, is it then his great men, the counts and legates and bishops, who do the evil and he does not know of it? Ransom responds, it is, though they are not exactly the sort of great men you have in mind. Merlin, and are we not, be, are we not big enough to meet them in plain battle? We are four men, some women, and a bear. I saw the time when Logers was only myself, one man, and two boys, and one of those was a churl, yet we conquered. Then Ransom responds, it could not be done now. They have an engine called the press, whereby the people are deceived. We should die without even being heard of. Merlin then says, but what of the true clerks? Is there no help in them? It cannot be that all your priests and bishops are corrupted. The faith itself is torn to pieces, Ransom responding here, since your day and speaks with a divided voice. Even if it were made whole, the Christians are but a tenth part of the people. There is no help there. Merlin then says, then let us seek help from overseas. Is there no Christian prince in Neustria or Ireland or Benwick who would come in and cleanse Britain if he were called? Ransom responds, there is no Christian prince left. These other countries are even as Britain or else sunk deeper still in the disease. Then finally, Merlin says, Then we must go higher. We must go to him whose office it is to put down tyrants and give life to dying kingdoms. We must call on the emperor. There is no emperor. That was the response from Ransom. No emperor, began Merlin, and then his voice died away. He sat still for some minutes, wrestling with a world which he had never envisaged. Presently, he said, A thought comes into my mind, and I do not know whether it is good or evil. But because I am the high council... He then goes on to, you know, think about something he had never thought of before, which is we may have to go towards the nobles outside of Christendom, the nobles, noble people, other people outside of, you know, the known world, the Occident, you know, ask them for, for help, those that don't have the gospel, but perhaps both could be open to it and would then be willing to help fight against, you know, such a cataclysmic evil. But uh, then it goes on for a bit, and it says... Uh, Sir, I believe it would be lawful to seek help even there, like I said, in these pagan lands, beyond Byzantium. It was rumored also that there was knowledge in those lands, an eastern circle and wisdom that came west from Numenor. <laughs> you know, ancient, you know, civilization, of course, referenced in Lord of the Rings as well. I know not where, Babylon, Arabia, or Cathay. You said your ships had sailed all around earth, above and beneath. Ransom shook his head. You do not understand, he said. The poison was brewed in these west lands, but it has spat itself everywhere by now. However far you went, you would find the machines. And so you got to finish the book to find out what happens and everything, but it's a fantastic you know, portrayal of kind of the fight against globalism and the power that reviving myth, reviving legend, reviving reality, which I consider you know, an enchanted magical world, that's reality, not this sterile garbage they've convinced us this you know endless vacuum of space where gravity holds us down and you know everything has a extremely logical explanation even if we don't have one you know in a bajillion years we'll have one in the future so put aside your religion put aside you know anything interesting anything fantastical anything that you know stirs something deeper within you put that all aside and just submit to science never i will i will never do that you will never ever catch me submitting to science but with all that being said i think this has been a really good episode like I said, catch World War Now with me and Dimitri this week. Again, I don't know what I'm going to call this. You know, World War Now episode 10.5, you know, Conrad's whatever. We'll, we'll see, but, you know, we're about to hit exactly 45 minutes, which I think is perfect. Uh, this was a good time. I enjoyed just sitting on the mic here making this. I hope it sounds good. But with all that, be sure to follow us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now, T-E-L-E, -E, all one word. 
Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Follow WolverineNow on Twitter, WolverineNow underscore. Follow Dimitri Ocanonist. He has way more followers than me anyway, so follow me before you follow him. But with all that being said, God bless. I hope you have a fantastic week. As I should have said at the beginning, this is uh, the second weekend of December here, Advent season. But again, like I said, God bless. Hope you all have a fantastic week, and uh, I'll see you real soon.